So if you want to make a cloak, what you'd want to do is, is sort of open up space, uh, push all your lines away so that they kind of went around this, this region, and then on the other side, they'd be unperturbed, right? You've just disturbed it in, in the center. And in the center, you can put whatever you want to be hidden because the light never sees it. It goes around it. And in so doing that, uh, we ended up with a prescription for what sort of material we would need to uh, achieve that. Um, that is, is what led to the, the cloaking demonstration. It's a certain uh, way of doing it um, yeah, to achieve this, this, um, uh, this, this phenomenon of invisibility. Uh, where it relates to relativity is, is um, if you had the right combination. In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find Science Robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles, where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks Science Robotics for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. I would like to ask you how you'd like to define yourself, or maybe people first time listening to you. How would you like to define yourself? Yeah. I'm I'm uh, currently a faculty member at uh, Duke University in the electrical and computer engineering department. Um, in for a long time, I've been studying metamaterials, uh, really since around 2000. That's what our group does here at Duke. Um, also, at the same time, I've done a lot with metamaterials commercialization. Uh, so I'm also involved with a company called Metacept, where we're looking to um, uh, commercialize metamaterials to spin off new companies, and, and that's also been part of my interest. Interesting. So maybe before going to more about invisibility and using metamaterial here, what is metamaterial, if you can just give it a basic definition, and also the challenges in the scope of the metamaterial here? Well, just to start with what a metamaterial is, is, is a, it, it's a very semantic uh, sort of um, argument uh, for what is really a, a basic concept. Uh, the original idea of metamaterials, when I first started thinking about this around 2000 or a little before, uh, was uh, a way of mimicking what materials do in nature, um, mimicking the molecules or atoms of conventional materials with artificial structures. So things that are not microscopic, but uh, are like constituents. So you imagine a bunch of uh, pieces that all look the same and assembling them together into a material um, with the material properties defined by these inclusions, these macroscopic elements rather than atoms uh, or, or molecules. So it's really a way of creating a material with certain properties uh, related to the geometry of the elements rather than their chemical properties. Mm-hmm. I really like this point. Um, maybe I want to ask you when it comes to creating new material, which you, you mentioned here, 
how do you see the material and the geometry? Because to be honest, I would like to know how geometry here could so much game changing in the performance of the material. Can you give an example, the material and geometric architecture? And from your experience here, which one was more intriguing to you? Of course, the material is interesting here, but I mean, giving up something very interesting or not, yeah, when it comes to utilizing metamaterial here. Initial thought behind metamaterials was for us in the electromagnetic space. So um, we think about electromagnetics or optics. And the optical properties there that you think about, or we originally thought about, were uh, the, the one that most people know is the index of refraction. That's, you know, light hits a surface uh, into a material and bends in the material a certain way, and that's related to the index of refraction. Uh, that index of refraction is responsible for, you know, things like glasses, right? These are made of glass and, and they bend light in a certain way. Um, deeper than that, uh, light is an electromagnetic wave. It has an electric component and a magnetic component, and you can control those each separately. Uh, so there's two other parameters that are, that are of interest, and that's the called the electric permittivity, which is often given the Greek symbol epsilon, and the magnetic permeability, which is often given the Greek symbol mu. So those are macroscopic parameters. If I give you a piece of glass, I can tell you what its epsilon is, its mu is, and its index of refraction. You know that glass is uh, composed of billions of molecules or, or, or atoms, uh, but you don't care about those because you do an averaging over those uh, to get those properties. What uh, the concept of metamaterial was is that you don't have to start with atoms, but you can start with little objects of some sort. Um, and those objects could take the place of atoms and give you that same effective parameter, the, the index or epsilon or mu. So um, what should the elements look like? Uh, it turned out uh, that, um, you know, it's, it's, it could be very simple. It could be just a little piece of, uh, a smaller piece of glass that's shaped in a sphere or a cylinder or something. Uh, that's large, much larger than an atom, but much smaller than the wavelength. That would do it. Uh, but what we found that turned out to be pretty useful was little circuits. So little things like rings and wires uh, would give you this uh, response. You could engineer a wire to have a, a type of um, electric response and give you an effective permittivity. And um, you could uh, have a little uh, uh, loop, almost like a little electrical circuit, and that loop would give you a magnetic response. Both of these things were thought about by Sir John Pendry just in the, in the 90s. He started writing about these ideas, and we were very um, inspired by that. I was inspired by that. Um, so there's this uh, concept of arranging wires and uh, uh, loops of wires into different patterns to make different materials with different properties is really the origin of the what's sort of the modern metamaterial concept. Mm -hmm, great. So when it comes to negative frictions here, can you tell us about how the story when you started to get the experiment and, and now we speak about invisibility, can you explain what's actually happening here and why this is happening if we don't have a background here? Can you elaborate more? Right. So the um, uh, so negative index and, and uh, the invisibility are two different uh, uh, pieces of the puzzle. They're, they're different types of response. Negative index um, is a funny one. It's, it's an, an, an index of refraction that's negative. 
And uh, that means if, if light hits an interface to a material with a negative index, it bends the wrong way. Instead of bending towards the normal, it bends on completely on the opposite side. Um, this was a material that was hypothesized by Victor Vesselago um, in the 60s, uh, but it was just a theoretical uh, uh, conjecture. Um, it requires that the electric permittivity be negative and the magnetic permeability be negative. So I've, I've mentioned those three parameters. The index is the square root of epsilon times mu. In most every material that's known, epsilon and mu are positive. Uh, but you can create a material where epsilon and mu are negative, and a negative times a negative is a positive, which means that uh, uh, you have a square root of a, pos a positive number, but it turns out you have to take the negative square root. Negative square root of uh, and square root of four is either plus or minus two, for example. Um, and it turns out that when epsilon and mu are both negative, you have to take the negative. So what does that mean? Um, what that means is, is uh, it turns out that these materials are, are resonant. Um, you have a resonance built up in your little element. And when you have that resonance, that's the key to everything because you can get um, a response which is out of, completely out of phase with your driving force. So if you imagine the optical field is moving electrons around and most materials, uh, when the field goes like this, the electron follows it. Um, if you have a resonance, it doesn't violate anything, um, it, it imposes some conditions, but you can have this weird situation where your driving field is like this and your electrons going like that. And that's what happens in a negative material. So you have, uh, um, for both epsilon and mu, you've got the effective particles running the opposite way from the direction that the field's applied. That seems weird, uh, but it's all to do with the resonance. So if you imagine um, uh, what happens uh, when you, when you uh, push uh, a child on a swing, for example, if you push at the right, uh, if you push very slowly, you sort of push the child comes back and you push again and, and the child's moving in the direction of the force. You push a little faster, you hit a resonance and all of a sudden it takes very little effort and, and the, the swing keeps getting larger and larger. If you started pushing out of phase in the wrong phase, all of a sudden uh, what happens is that the swing is moving back to you when your hands are outstretched and it's as if you're, you, the force is against you. But that's all because of the resonance. It doesn't violate anything. It just is, is a weird thing because you can build up energy in the system. And so uh, it's a deep concept. It confused a lot of people. I wouldn't be surprised if you're confused by that. But the result is that you can have these parameters become negative. And that was something that um, just wasn't uh, exploited or thought about very much until uh, we started doing these experiments around 2000. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to using this an application like stealth technology, for example, or invisibility clock here, you mentioned there's something interesting regarding relativity. And can you explain more about what do you mean about uh, maybe explanation could be related to relativity here? So you're switching to a different topic now. So uh, in in the metamaterials community, there was a lot of interest in you know negative indexes. One interesting thing that had never been seen before, and so there was a lot of uh, you know, after these, these, that discovery was made or reported, um, what else can you do with metamaterials? And uh, one of the ideas that uh, my colleague Sir John Pendry came up with was um, thinking about uh, uh, this, this idea of designing materials by first considering a coordinate transformation. 
so you can take, um, you know, one way of designing things, there's, there's a whole way of designing optical devices, of course, there's refractive optics, there's a, a gradient optics and, and lots of tools. Uh, but one thing you can imagine is if you uh, were to draw a bunch of light rays on a piece of paper, and then you were to uh, distort that paper, imagine it was on rubber or something and you could just move it around, you could bend those rays um, just however you wanted to. Um, you can't do that in real life, but you can take that, um, what's called a coordinate transformation, and you can write down mathematically what you did, and you can apply it to Maxwell's equations, which govern um, uh, uh, light and, and electromagnetic waves. And that results in giving you a prescription for the electric permittivity and the magnetic permeability that achieve that exact thing that you wrote down, that, that you just sort of did in your mind, right? So if you want to make a cloak, what you'd want to do is, is sort of open up space, uh, push all your lines away so that they kind of went around this, this region, and then on the other side, they'd be unperturbed, right? You've just disturbed it in the, in the center. And in the center, you can put whatever you want to be hidden because the light never sees it. It goes around it. And in so doing that, uh, we ended up with a prescription for what sort of material we would need to uh, achieve that. Um, that is, is what led to the, the cloaking demonstration. It's a certain uh, way of doing it um, yeah, to achieve this, this, um, uh, this, this phenomenon of invisibility. Uh, where it relates to relativity is, is um, if you had the right combination of masses and it would really take a horrendous amount of energy, but it's, it's the kind of invisibility that Star Trek, for example, uh, imagines in, in their universe, uh, you know, uh, mass can warp space. So if you have the, presumably the right combination of masses or energy, because they're, they're equivalent in, in Einstein's world, um, you would be able to actually physically warp space so that uh, you could take your, um, your, your ship or your whatever you want to hide and just take it out of that space and everything else would look unperturbed. So you would really, it would be removed physically from, from uh, that, that space. You'd warp it such that, um, you know, light and everything else would, would uh, uh, move around, but it looked as if it had been unperturbed. We can't do that with materials. Uh, we can do this illusion of invisibility. We can apply the same sort of coordinate transformation, uh, but again, it, it involves a resonance. And when you have a resonance, it means you can only do that at one frequency, so or a, a very narrow band. So inherently, what we did experimentally is like uh, has has a lot of ties to this relativistic approach of invisibility, but it, it's not changing the physics, right? So all you're doing is is uh, doing this uh, effect at a narrow band of frequencies. So as a stealth technology, it, it's not very good because it's only going to work over a very narrow band. Mm -hmm. That's a good by me. I'll ask you two questions here about the design, how you design invisibility for different frequencies. If it's in tiles, materials, metamaterials, it's actual in the material level or a structure in geometry here for different frequency. Maybe the first part here. Right, so there, there's a few answers to that. Um, if you, uh, you, you have this prescription and this prescription is, is done, it uh, is given for a given frequency. 
Um, and if you deviate from that frequency, it works less and less well and, 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 and you know, very poorly if you go very far from that. So your design is specific for a frequency. And, and um, if you were to think in concrete terms what that looks like, um, that cloak, uh, for example, the one we did um, in, in two dimensions was sort of a cylinder, kind of a plate, a uh, bunch of rings around it, each ring having a bunch of metamaterial elements, each element designed to give you, you know, the, the um, uh, response that you needed, both electric and magnetic at that point. So if you wanted to do that for multiple frequencies, um, it's not clear uh, quite how you would do it in a passive material um, because each one of these has to be resonant. Um, I, you know, if you tried to overlay two different ones, the ones that were off resonance for one frequency would uh, cause problems at, at the one that you're trying to cloak at a different frequency. Um, the way around this is to uh, use, um, is to introduce energy into the system. So actually, um, uh, power each each point uh, using active material that is um, really not been worked out very well I mean it's known that you can increase the bandwidth that way uh, to some extent uh, really not infinite but to some uh, amount uh, but how you do that is, is just an open area of research I mean it's it's theoretically possible but I, I don't know anyone that's actually done something that, that complicated and once you start putting energy into a system like that you have instabilities and all sorts of things to worry about, so it's a hard problem to solve. Um, what's intriguing is that it's possible that that there it should be possible to do something like that, but I think it's very difficult right now. Mm -hmm. We also ask you about the heostills technology and visibility, and especially when you speak about the aircraft, for example, that's a case of that. And then there's anti-stills technology, and then anti-anti-stills technology. And you see it's going from two directions, how you be visible and detect the visibility, and then be visible. And it's going to now anti-anti-stills technology. But I don't know where it's now, but I'm curious about you about the design, when you design about visibility and how to detect you, and then be visible again. I don't know if you get what I mean, but it's just, it's a scenario. Well, there, there's, um, you know, invisibility is, is an interesting concept because most of the world is invisible to us, right? We see um, in, in the optical wavelengths. When you're talking about stealth for the military, the military usually sees with microwaves. Um, so it's a big uh, deal to um, understand the visibility or invisibility of things at microwave frequencies, which is where we did a lot of our experiments. Um, so traditional stealth, um, this idea of, of warping space having something, uh, having waves come in and then being rerouted so that it looks like they passed through free space is not something that's part of stealth technology because it's just really difficult to do. Um, it doesn't pass through materials. So stealth has typically been based on absorbing the waves that come in or rescattering them, which is why if you've seen pictures of uh, some of these uh, stealth planes, they look so sort of angular and strange because they're really trying to either scatter away uh, the, the return signal to a radar or absorb it. So if you imagine a radar which is sending out a signal and then looking for the return, um, the stealth is, uh, technology is pretty good if you just absorb everything. If, if, if your uh, radar station never receives a return signal, this is invisible as far as the radar is concerned. Where that breaks down is uh, if you have another radar station over here which is working with this one uh, because it's really impossible to absorb everything 
And even if you don't scatter back to this first radar, if you if this other one can detect the scatter uh, radiation, then um, you have effectively made it visible again. So uh, that's kind of the cat and mouse game that's being played in that, that field. Um, you know, you're having a low observable structure. Uh, it works if you're just sending and receiving pulses from one direction. Uh, but if you're looking at multiple directions, it's very hard to, to cloak something like that. Uh, you'd have to really absorb everything, and that's hard to do. Um, that's invisibility, you know, in, in that context. Um, another one that uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about is, is in security imaging. Uh, when you go, for example, pass through a, a scanner at an airport, um, RF is used to see things on a person because it can see through clothing. Um, so you can look for threat objects, you can look for guns and knives and things like that. So that's a good example of, uh, you know, rendering something invisible uh, to the wavelengths of interest and, and, and looking for something. Is there a way to defeat that? You could imagine that there's ways of making things less observable as well. And that's another cat and mouse game that's being used. It, you wouldn't necessarily call it stealth, uh, but you'd call it uh, invisibility versus invisibility. Visibility versus invisibility. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll ask you, do you think, uh, any example in nature, maybe related to invisibility, and maybe inspiring that design, do you have any examples from nature that's really good example of visual invisibility here, if we speak, and you think it could be interesting? There, there is, um, and and most of it is it comes under camouflage, right? So, <clears throat> invisibility is is really about detection. If you can't detect something, it's invisible to you, and so there's a lot of animals um, in this uh, in nature that uh, uh, can change their appearance to match into their their surrounding. And that's just as good an invisibility trick as any. Um, and it's really remarkable. There's certain things like cuttlefish um, that, are, that are known that uh, can really uh, uh, change um, by chemistry, I guess. Uh, I don't know their, their full uh, um, uh, physiology, that they're, why they're able to do this. Uh, but they can change their color and actually patterns to blend into their surroundings. Also, certain types of lizards, uh, things like that. Um, and, you know... It, that really is a, a useful form of invisibility in the sense that um, if you can't see it, you can't see it, right? Or if it's hard to see, if it reduces or obscures your ability to see the target, that's that's just as valid of a, a route to invisibility. So given the difficulties in, in uh, some of the types of things that we do at optical wavelengths, uh, it, it would be a perfectly uh, reasonable uh, approach to try to mimic that, what nature does, by projecting uh, what's behind you, in front of you, so that you blend in very well. And I think there are schemes like that. I don't know how successful they are, but that's that's certainly an idea that uh, is reasonable. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll ask you, there's something still, you mentioned there's a lot of things to be solved, but what may be still challenging part here, or limitation when it comes to understanding, designing the visibility for maybe, for, like a visibility clock, for example, completely. What did that mean, do you think, uh, to, to achieve that? Uh, the, the difficulties are, are um, uh, really uh, uh, significant. One is there's, <clears throat> for electromagnetics, the speed of light is what sets that, um, that, that bandwidth limit. So uh, we're not going to get around that. Um, if you want to see something in uh, air or, or near vacuum, uh, and, and make it invisible, 
uh, that is, is really going to be difficult to get around those fundamentals. The only way around that is may, maybe make the material active. Um, and again, that's a whole area in itself uh, for study. You know, there's a lot of, of new science that has to be developed there to make that work. Um, we understand the prescription. We know this is what you need. Uh, but to get that and to make it broadband is really a, a, a major challenge. Um, another possibility is to look in areas where um, where the the uh, uh, where where it's easier, where that fundamental limitation of the speed of light isn't there. Uh, so, for example, if you were to image something in water, uh, water has a high dielectric constant. Um, the speed of light is slower, uh, but uh, it's the speed of light in in the the medium that matters. Um, and so that uh, actually uh, enables you to have a, a broader um, uh, bandwidth of cloaking. This was something that was shown by uh, Martin Wegner. Uh, he did an experiment uh, uh, in a medium and showed that you can have much more broadband cloaking, and it's very interesting. Also, uh, acoustics doesn't have that limitation. So if you wanted to make something uh, invisible in the sense of sound waves, um, that is something that uh, is worth exploring because I think there's, there's more possibility there. And that also has potential uses. Um, the uh, strict invisibility in air um, of, of making something disappear to uh, all wavelengths is an incredibly challenging problem. Mm, great. Maybe I want to ask you there's a critique you received regarding working in this problem. I don't know that critique or people disagree with what you're doing in, in comes to invisibility or this particular use of material here? No, we, we uh, had a lot of controversy um, early on in, in negative index because that was such a, uh, a weird um, physical property that uh, it, it struck people as very counterintuitive. And so a lot of people doubted yeah. it, it could exist and doubted everything. Uh, but after a few years, I think that was settled and, and um, that was done. So by the time cloaking came around, um, it, we, we were, uh, so, so one, I didn't expect it would be such a, a large deal. Um, you, you know, it was just a scientific thing and, and uh, uh, it really captured the imagination. So a lot of people just liked it. It happened to come out around the same time as Harry Potter. So uh, there was a lot of tie-ins with that. Um, it's just a topic people like. Um, and uh, I think most people understood that um, we were doing an aspect of uh, invisibility, but it really had a lot of limitations, and we were very clear about the limitations. Um, it's interesting from the design point of view, transformation optics, the way you do this has a lot of other applications, and that really took off as a field. Um, really thousands and thousands of papers now have been written about transformation optics that are not all about cloaking. Uh, but cloaking really, um, uh, uh, just from the scientific uh, uh, challenge, uh, prompted a lot of follow-up work. And I think most of it has been very positive. It's just really a fun thing mathematically to think about and physically to think about. So it, it it's, uh, really pushed uh, that science of metamaterials uh, in, in, in interesting directions. Mm-hmm. Maybe for going to the other uses of metamaterial about the design, if you can tell us about that, when you think about the design, because you've worked in now more than 20 years, the design space for metamaterial for invisibility, can you tell us just a glimpse what, what's so significant to you when you try to think about 
designing the structure to be invisible? What is in the design space is so significant or to help you to come up with the desired goal to be invisible here? Well, the, um, the, the approach that, uh, of transformation optics that um, John Pendry uh, helped come up with is, is really a powerful tool. Um, so if you, if you think of designing things by just warping space, that, that gives you a lot of ideas. And as a designer, you don't even have to think about um, what the material property is because it's given to you automatically. As soon as you know how you want light to behave, you just sort of write that down, uh, apply it to uh, Maxwell's equations. There's a little bit of work involved, but in the end, you just get this um, prescription for these uh, elements that you need. We've had a lot of experience in looking at an epsilon and saying, this is how you get it, looking at a mu and saying, this is how you get it. So for us, um, if we're making a, a volumetric material that's going to try to do this, um, we know that if epsilon is this, we need a wire of this length or of this shape. And if we need this mu, we need a ring that looks like this. Um, so that's all part of what we've sort of developed over the past number of years. And, and so, you know, everything in my mind gets uh, translated into a bunch of little wires and, and, and rings. Now you have to support those somehow. Uh, so a lot of what we do is, is tr make use of um, circuit board technologies. Uh, we, it's really easy, you know, because you need thousands and thousands of these elements uh, to just use a conventional circuit board manufacturer because they're really good at making little metal pa patterns on, um, on different types of substrates. So uh, we look at that and we kind of think of how to assemble it and that really becomes the basis for, for our um, metamaterial if we're thinking about electromagnetics. I have colleagues that work in um, acoustics and so that design is very different, right? You, you're thinking about how you manage an, an acoustic wave, you're thinking about pressure, um, waves and, and uh, uh, velocity and, and mass, um, and mass density, and so all those sorts of things lead to very different sorts of designs, and, and they've developed uh, their own intuition for making acoustic metamaterials, uh, but that's basically how, how it works. Mm -hmm. So, since of course then I have a few questions, maybe if you can tell us about other application for metamaterial, you have already I think spin-off companies here, but maybe you can give us very critical, a very crucial application for metamaterial when it comes to industry here. Yeah. Um, I think uh, we've done a lot of work in antennas, and the revolution in antennas really happened in the, I'd say it started happening in the 90s because uh, wireless really took off. And um, at the time, uh, once wireless takes off, you start to need antennas. And antennas that sit and, and just have, uh, you know, one direction in which they look uh, are really not um, consistent with the entire revolution that's happening where things can be anywhere. Um, so you want a, 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 an antenna that can actually be reconfigurable and move and change its, its um, you know, its radiation pattern. You think that that would be a solved problem, and it kind of was with things called phased arrays. Uh, but phased arrays are really expensive. They, they, they couldn't be, you know, just instantly uh, accessible to consumers. They really cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not near millions, and, and they um, consume massive amounts of power. Uh, metamaterials have sort of um, uh, revolutionized that uh, 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 entire segment uh, because they, we can make apertures that uh, can create different types of radiation patterns, but with much lower power draw, 
at much lower cost, and so things that can really go into consumer-level markets. And so um, if you ask where antennas are needed now, it's everywhere because wireless is such a, a, a key uh, component in our lives. So it's communications, um, it's sensing, uh, it, it can be things like wireless power transfer. All of those things now are, 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 are just continuing to increase in, in, in uh, their needs. And so we've seen um, uh, uh, metamaterials now be really useful in all those areas and similar things uh, for example lidar uh, and uh, uh, um, you know other other uh, venues wherever you need to to create a, a an electromagnetic beam at some frequency and then receive it all of that uh, we, we found huge advantages with metamaterials mm -hmm. maybe i'm just ask you when you have the idea to design for example the antenna or metamaterial for application here industry how do you ensure the idea could be commercialized i mean when you work in academia still there is a yeah you try to think about an idea but still you don't know the aspect of commercialization how do you balance the two that you make sure it's useful as well that's a good question so um the uh you know how you balance or how you decide something can be commercially useful we've got a lot of good friends in this so something that happened early on is a company called Intellectual Ventures uh, decided that uh, they were interested in metamaterials back when it was controversial and no one knew what it was good for. And they brought um, this, this, uh, this, this company was started by a man named Nathan Mirvold, who's a former CTO of Microsoft. And um, they uh, uh, decided to take um, a, a significant stake in, in metamaterials. They, they uh, licensed and, and, and started building a portfolio around metamaterials. And this was really before anyone knew what it was, would be good for. for. Um, so they, uh, you know, coming from university, I, I had just done the basic science, not really aware of, of uh, what industry needs were or, or applications. And they helped a lot um, with that sort of marketing. They, you know, we said, oh, here's what we have. and, and uh, Working with them, they, they uh, sort of put together a business development team and, and um, you know, what happens is now a conversation. You start saying, okay, could you do this? Because this would be useful for this, this, and this. When we started Metamaterials, it was a solution without a problem. We didn't know what we were making it for. Um, once we started getting problems, uh, you begin to move, tilt your research more towards that and eventually you meet up somewhere. And then you need people to go around and say, okay, well, if you actually made this, would a lot of people buy it? You know, how much of an impact would it make? And all that process uh, went on over a number of years, resulting in the spinoff of uh, six or seven companies so far, and we're still considering more, um, that have actually been quite successful in, in their different um, uh, technology markets. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Maybe I'll ask you about the, your uh, vision or when you try to think about what's next for your passion to design new metamaterial or the solving the invisibility problem, for example. What do you think about? What is your aspiration here? Um, you know, one of the recent companies that we spun off um, which, which is called Neurophos, which is very interesting because it is um, looking at doing optical computing. And uh, it turns out that optical computing is something that um, uh, many people are, are, are looking to uh, achieve. Uh, but the real benefit is, is trying to do optical computing with low power consumption. So we have the same 
uh, uh, potential benefit with metamaterials, again, uh, that uh, would potentially allow us a scalable solution to do um, things like uh, uh, inference chips. So this is a lot of the what, what's sort of happening now in, in, in the industry where you're using um, a different type of computing to uh, help with machine learning and, and uh, identification. So for example, in self-driving cars, you have, to, you have a lot of processing going on in your car to figure out all the obstacles. And, you know, if you want to have a self-driving car, it's got to be able to identify everything, uh, make sure you don't get into a crash. All of that requires heavy processing. And the more this, this industry goes on, the more of the power budget in a car is, is used for this exact uh, purpose. So uh, there's a real need for optical computing, uh, which can get around uh, both latency, uh, you know, have be, be uh, faster, and also lower power consumption. And so we're looking at using metamaterials for that now with this comp company called Neurofos. And uh, moving into a computing arena just completely enlarges the market for metamaterials massively and, and would have a profound impact. So that's one of the things that we're looking at uh, very closely and, and hoping to have a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. Great. Maybe I want to touch again about we mentioned that we don't see the reality as it is and I think it's related to invisibility. And maybe some voices can say that how you ensure that this something will be good for humanity if we have invisibility uh, here, for example, clocks. And when you try to think about our life and just as a human, we don't see the reality as it is and maybe some some stuff are maybe invisible to us as a human because we have a limited, I don't know, sensation, maybe, but how do you think about that? Create something invisible, and yet we as a human, we don't know the full reality of the life. I don't know if you get to what I see here. I, I think the, um, you know, the, the so, so invisibility to really hide something just does not seem to have a lot of uh, um, uses except in a military sense or an espionage sense. However, um, there is a, as we, as we continue forward in this world of, of wireless devices and, and things communicating with things, interference becomes a problem. And uh, so if, you know, even though we don't see with microwaves, all of our devices see with microwaves. Our phone sees at you know, uh, 1.8 gigahertz or 2.5 gigahertz, and, and your laptop sees at five gigahertz and all that. Um, all of these things now are communicating with each other, and so a lot of things interfere with that. Um, invisibility can be used to take those things that interfere out of the picture, and that might be potentially down the line of uh, a use and a, and a really uh, conceivable use for this type of technology, which is to essentially remove, not that you don't want to see them, but that you want to remove them from a, commu uh, from a communications channel or a path. Um, I think that's something, or to reduce interference, uh, that, that could be a good use of this technology. Mm -hmm, great. I don't know if you have any advice you can give, or maybe you given to, you would like to share, maybe in the career or personally, you think it's very important to you? Um, I, I think uh, if you're talking about uh, people that are thinking of a scientific career, um, you know, I, I think if it, it depends what stage you're at, you're at, but always I think you have to keep learning. Um, everything that we did in the beginning with metamaterials, I was sort of amazed that everything I'd ever learned sort of came into play, that uh, every tool that I picked up, everything, you know, I ended up using. And so everything you, you sort of come across uh, is really helpful and you have to know as much as possible. So that's that's one thing. 
And two is I, I, I think it's, it's worth always asking what use your research would be uh, and always striving to try to make it relevant and uh, uh, hoping that it affects more and more people because that's kind of what you're in it for, right? Um, bringing knowledge to the world is, is one piece, uh, but after that, looking to see how it can be useful to people is another. And so that's um, you know, something that I did sort of naturally uh, and I think it it uh, it should uh, impact whatever you're doing. I, I think that's just a process you can follow. That's amazing. I don't know if you have any final words to like to say here, uh, we were listening. Any final words? Like to say? No, other than that, it's been a very fun uh, uh, thing to think about. Uh, not, you know, not many people get to think about invisibility as, as in, in the way that we we were able to. Um, it was a fun uh, uh, endeavor, and, and um, all of the science that grew out of that it proved just amazingly interesting. So, uh, um, and none of this was started with any intent. Um, all of it is, is just grew out of the curiosity of science. Negative index was never even a thing we thought about. We started sort of working and, and doing stuff just for the fun of it. So love what you do is, is certainly a message um, because uh, the basic science is why we were, uh, I was in it and why the people around me were in it. In fact, when we started Negative Index, it was just a, um, it was just a hobby. It wasn't funded. It was, uh, it was nothing that um, anyone probably even would have funded. Uh, we did it at nights and weekends in the lab I was in, um, and then suddenly it just uh, turned out to be a big thing. So uh, I would say, uh, you know, just make sure that uh, you're, you're pursuing your own interests and, and, and staying aware.